Welcome to Meditations with Sohar. I am very happy to be here today with Rohit Krishan, who just wrote a book called Building God, Demystifying AI for Decision Makers. Uh, he's also a prolific blogger under the uh, appellation Strange Loop Canon, and he has a varied background. I think of him as a, an autodidact and a generalist, uh, a man after my heart. Um, started off as an engineer and then uh, made his way into investing. I think he's had a background in lots of different markets and now who knows what he does, but he writes about AI. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm going to start with a, with a hard and simple question, which is what is creativity? Uh, let's, let's jump in at the deep end. Why don't we? Um, I mean, many people have many different definitions, but the one that I have been partial to is that it is the ability to come up with an, um, a new explanation or like a new constellation of ideas that when put together is not something that has existed in the world before. Um, and it's different in different domains, but I think the commonality there is that they are the newness of it, the fact that when you put them together, it is not usually in a format that is easily um, copyable from sort of a pre-existing domain. I think that is a key part of creativity. Okay. And does, that, does that jive? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I think I, don't know if it does. I, I think it's a cool sort of almost like engineering type description of creativity, which is a focus on the an, the anatomy of it rather than, let's say, the, the source, the motivation of it, and, that, and that's fine. So I want to go deeper into it. And, and the reason why I'm interested in creativity, uh, just to put my cards on the table, one, I, um, my, <laughs> my livelihood depends on it, but also more, uh, more importantly, I enjoy it. I derive a lot of meaning and awe from the practice of creativity and from seeing it in other people. And I think it, tr it tracks with generalism and with talent. And I also think it may be one of the frontiers where, from my perspective, AI is not as not as good. Uh, obviously, that, that depends on uh, the future of AI as well as how we define creativity. But um, so there's this midwit meme, which I know you've seen, um, which, which is the sort of low IQ, uh, middle IQ and high IQ bell curve and the low IQ and high IQ uh, positions agree with one another. So just spelling that out for my sort of septuagenarian listeners who may not be on Twitter. Um, the, um, the ability to put things together that don't typically go together um, seems to follow this bell curve distribution and that it's something that we find in children or people who are sort of naive, uh, people who are amateurs or picking something up for the first time. And we also find it uh, amongst masters, people who have sort of spent many uh, many years doing their scales or doing their reps. How do you think about the distribution of creativity um, as part of the learning journey where sort of you start off creative, then it's beaten out of you um, as you have to standardize. And then maybe if you're lucky, you get it again. I mean, you mentioned sort of the engineering definition, right? The other way to think about, like two ways to think about creativity when you kind of um, started out with. I mean, there's the first question is whether it's an intrinsic quality versus an extrinsic quality, right? Like, I mean, it is something that you have, or is it something that you can get by doing something that you, um, you know, might not have thought about before or might not have been guided into, but it is important to kind of think about both of these motivations that come together. Um, 
I mean, assuming like with everything else in the world that it's some combination of those two, uh, I'm partial to thinking about the second one as the lever that we should talk about more, primarily because if you think about that, all of a sudden it becomes something that you can action. Because like intrinsic qualities by definition are qualities that you don't really, you can't really do a whole lot about, right? I mean, I'm not really going to get much taller. I'm not really going to go become a, you know, uh, go play in the NBA any longer. For sure. No, so let's But let's the other things to, exist. So going with the extrinsic one, though. So there's Robert Greene wrote this book called Mastery, which makes the claim, and I'm very sympathetic to it, that basically our, our culture promotes dilly-dallying and um, and not focusing. And it's funny because like I had David Epstein on the podcast and we were talking about range and the, and the importance of it. But I think the, the argument for mastery is almost the opposite, which is, um, let's say in the Middle Ages, people could spend 50, 60, you know, they could spend their entire life on one thing and get really good at it. But you only unlock the creativity after, let's say, your first 30 years or something like this. And because we're not investing that level of devotion, we're never actually getting we're never actually getting to that level of creativity. I don't know if you agree with that, but how do you think about it? I have a different point of view on that. I mean, if we think about the masters who worked really hard on their craft, even in history, all of them had different periods where they were creative in different ways. And that, you know, you can go back however you want, right? Whether it's architecture, Frank uh, Gehry had different periods where he was more or less um, inventive in different styles. Gaudi had the same, Impressionist had the same. If you go back to Enlightenment, Michelangelo had the same, Leo Da Vinci had the same. And it they span, um, they span topics, they span problems. Sometimes it's mathematical, sometimes it's architectural, sometimes it's painting, sculpture. There's a whole set of different ways in which they managed to find ways to express themselves or to do the thing that they were asked to do in a format that nobody thought was possible or like nobody actually wanted to kind of um, think about in that particular fashion. I mean, Da Vinci's uh, bridge, the self-interlocking bridge uh, that did not have, uh, you know, supports is an example of it where I mean, he built it or he designed it because it was Da Vinci and it was, you know, it's the same person who has done, you know, a whole lot of different things. So in some ways, I feel like, you know, if I think about the difference between, you know, the dilettante version of creativity versus the mastery, like they look different, but some roots are the same. And I'll come to what I think the difference is in the modern era. I think the, the roots are that you are deeply invested in um, what you are. You're deeply invested in a problem set or you're deeply invested in a couple of particular aspects of what you're doing enough so that you can push your way through to the frontier as you see the frontier. It doesn't necessarily need to be the frontier as someone else sees it, but it has to be as you see it. So examples in the modern era might be, you know, filmmaking, right? Whether it's Spielberg or whether it's Quentin Tarantino, they have fought their way to the front of the frontier in a way that makes sense to them. Chris Nolan does the same thing as well. I mean, these are all different expressions of creativity according to them that don't necessarily have the same format that, I don't know, Hitchcock did uh, many, many years ago or Orson Welles did. Um, the difference is that if you're not actually deeply interested in what you are doing, which I, which I realize sounds a little bit judgmental, but I think that's kind of the delta here. If you're not really interested in it, then you end up being 
a, a dilettante, right? I mean, you butterfly along and you, to your point, you can easily see someone trying 15 different things without necessarily having taken pleasure, depth, knowledge, joy, um, having tried to create something new in that particular arena where they're spending so much time and effort. And that to me is kind of the difference here. It's more about what do you put into your search function as opposed to have you spent enough time or effort into that search function? I mean, you'd probably need a little bit of both, but to me, like the former seems like a bigger lack than the latter. In investing, one of the sort of go-to words that you hear about as an amateur is diversification. Um, it's presented as like a free, a, a kind of free option, um, just diversify. Um, but when you talk to a lot of sort of investing legends, they, they tend to take the opposite approach. Charlie Munger has a third of his net worth in Costco. How do you think about the diversification versus concentration dichotomy or dialectic as it relates to the creativity realm and dialectics? Because it sounds like what you were saying a minute ago is that you should be more like a Charlie Munger and whatever it is that you're doing rather than, let's say, uh, you know, um, yeah, you get it. If you think about people, I mean, in investing, if you think about people who have had outsized wealth or success in be doing investing, a large portion of them have got that through some version of similar to Munger. I mean, those are more common than the otherwise, right? Um, you know, Buffett is somewhat similar. I mean, his best investment in some ways is the investment in Apple over the last several years. Now, part of me kind of goes like, if you think about people who own businesses, this makes perfect sense. Because like people who own businesses make their wealth from businesses, which means almost by definition, they're not diversified in any meaningful sense. Um, it's worth noting that diversification is important for uh, a specific set of people. It is important if you are more of an amateur investor or like this is not what you want to do for your livelihood, then you have to take the path that affords you the highest return for lowest risk and therefore you should probably be diversified. But if you are not an amateur investor, as Munger is not, as Buffett is not, Peter Lynch, like name any of these people, they're not amateurs. Then all of a sudden, you know, the same advice does not translate because they are doing this as a profession. I mean, across the uh, annual meetings, like there are regular questions that people ask Buffett and Munger for their conversations. And something they come back to repeatedly is that if you're a professional investor, that this is what you want to do with your life. There's a set of things that you need to do and you shouldn't, like Munger also says, right, you should you should put your eggs in the basket that you actually understand, etc. And otherwise, put it in an index fund. I mean, there is this uh, question asked by, uh, I think, Tim Ferriss when he was 30 years old in one of the annual general meetings where he asked this question and Buffett sort of kind of says, like, you know, if this is not your job, don't do it as a hobby because there are people who do it as a job and they kind of will wipe the floor with you. Uh, there is this, uh, I, I think Keynes kind of went through a similar transformation. Originally, he was a bit of a dilettante. I mean, he played FX markets. He actually lost a lot of money in the crashes. And then later, he kind of came around to, okay, I will pick the one companies or stocks that I actually like and I understand and I feel have a future and put my money into those things and then watch it grow. So the same I mean, if you think about the creative endeavors, similar things exist, right? I mean, if you think about all of the people you would think of as creative today, they would have areas where they are 
not diversified because human life by definition is not something you can easily diversify. But at the same time, they will probably have a large range of interests in other ways that perhaps um, inform them, make up who they are as, as human beings. It's not like they only do one thing and one thing only. Yeah. So to synthesize all of that, maybe the whether you take the Robert Green approach or the David Epstein approach, what what connects these geniuses is the conviction that they have ultimately in what they're doing. They're they're not they're not just doing so. it for the option value. They're they're sort of they're all in. Yeah. I mean the way I think about it is that uh, when I'm asked for advice or whatever, I think that, that the 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 distillation that I have managed to come to is that don't do things for instrumental reasons do things for reasons that are end goals in and of themselves. So David Epstein's, uh, I mean, Range is a great book, right? It kind of talks a little bit about all of these great athletes who kind of went through different formative years by playing different sports, thereby developing different sorts of skill sets. And eventually when they figured out where they wanted to kind of apply those skill sets, it meant that they could achieve mastery, you know, to, to use Green's word, but in a way that is dissimilar. Now there are, it's, it stands to reason that there are all sorts of counterexamples, right? I mean, Tiger Woods is the classic counterexample that David Epstein himself talks about. So for some people, uh, call it luck, call it what you will, they get introduced to the thing that they love, their life's purpose at age three or whenever it was, Tiger Woods got his golf clubs. And that becomes sort of a lifelong journey for them. For almost the vast, vast majority of humanity, that's not the way it works, right? I mean, we don't get introduced to our first love at age three and never to kind of have it given up. We have to kind of work through different things to figure out which combination of things that exist in the world is the portfolio that makes most sense to you as an individual. And that will be different for you and me and for everyone else. Pivoting now to some AI and large language models, if we are training large language models on a diverse set of data, are we not in a sense diversifying? Are we are we not basically building a, a portfolio based upon the internet as a whole? And so if if we're doing that, then wouldn't we expect that to, to the, the end result to be an amateur? Um, whereas if we want if we want an LM to actually be a genius, then we should just take a bunch of geniuses and have those geniuses train the LLM purely on themselves or some much more concentrated uh, sort of specialized approach? Uh, Broadly, yes. I think sort of that's one of the things that I talk a little bit about in the book, but like I've written about otherwise as well, that like, I mean, LLMs are wonderful because they can do everything, but they can't do anything all that well yet. I mean, some things they can do really well, but like you need to work with it repeatedly, right? So it increases the ability for URI to kind of do a whole host of different things, but it doesn't mean that the LLM in itself has become a, um, a genius in any meaningful sense for any individual task that you've given it. Um, the way to think about it is that like, ultimately these are machines where we have, we have figured out a way to distill a large chunk of human knowledge into some format whereby we can query it and get results back. And we don't know the exact format of how this corpus, how this intelligence, I mean, I know that's not the right word, but I'm using it for colloquial purposes. Uh, this intelligence functions where we give a query, it gives a response, it, un- it understands a bunch of different things theoretically. Now, if you wanted to act or behave as genius would, 
there are two problems. Number one is that we actually don't know how geniuses act or behave in any meaningful sense because geniuses, one of the hallmarks is that they are pretty diverse in how they are, right? I mean, it, it's not like there is no um, cookie cutter approach to identifying a genius and whether that is in uh, painting, mathematics, athletics, music, chess, you name it, you have as many different types of geniuses as there are people and they all kind of reach their mastery in differentiated forms, which means we don't have a simplified, easily understandable way of how to distill the insights into it. What you can do today is to make specialist LMs in individual arenas, you know, either through sort of particular action of fine tuning or like training at uh, de novo, which gives you much better performance in those domains than what you would get from sort of a generic LM. But what you don't get from sort of the, compared to the human genius, if you will, is that ultimately the human genius is a, a, a search function over this entire universe in order to try and identify some things that click inside your brain, which sounds somewhat similar to something that, you know, we should be able to teach a machine to be able to do. We haven't been able to do it. Will we ever be able to do it? It's unclear. You can try and get it to spark new connections, which drive you to think in new directions, but that's very much acting as an assistant, right? It's not acting as a master. So to reformulate it, are you suggesting that the difference between uh, an LLM and a human is simply the, the size of the data that they're working with that ultimately comes no. down to parameters or okay no 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 because an llm ultimately is a it has a particular architecture that allows it to do certain things really really well and that architecture allows it to you know um answer queries about whatever the bible as easily as coding as easily as ancient history as philosophy but it it does not work the same way as human beings work I mean, maybe in minor ways, but that's not how we work, right? Everything from our recollection to our memory to the way creativity manifests itself, the way we learn from small conversations as well as large conversations, the way we have certain amounts of abilities, understanding knowledge hardwired into us and the rest of it, which we acquire over a period of time, how we forget. I mean, a, a, a whole set of these things, and that's not even mentioning the entire social component of our learning, understanding, and evolving, which is a huge part of what it is to be a human. I think we kind of don't, like, it is a fundamentally different way of uh, how we think about intelligence. What are your thoughts on the, this, this is a hypothesis that ultimately creativity correlates to forgetfulness. Um, one of the reasons why LLMs are not creative is because they can't forget anything. And one of the reasons why human beings might be creative is actually because we, uh, in, instead of having to update, we can just lose things. I think forgetting is incredibly important. I don't know whether that is a core reason, because for me, the reasons LLMs are not creative kind of come down to the fact that ultimately their next token predictors in an autoregressive, which means only in one direction, uh, computation, and that has limitations, right? In terms of what it can do. Humans, we can learn from any modality, we can learn any types of data, we can integrate it into some sort of a flimsy corpus and extrapolate things from it, we can synthesize. All of these are things that like, we can see the output being somewhat similar, but the input and the modalities in an LLM are not quite there yet. 
So I think forgetfulness is important because forgetfulness is why we are able to, I don't know, like have a specific types of creativity. Now, there is a part where like we have to define what it means. And all of these are definitionally slippery concepts. You know what I mean? Like if if an LLM writes a poet like writes a poem that I like, does that mean that it's being creative? I mean, you can argue yes, right? I mean, it creates an image that evokes a certain feeling in me. That is part of being creative as well. However, we understand qualitatively that despite the effect that that image has on me, the conversation that would have happened between me and the creator of that image were we to have that conversation is different in some meaningful sense than the way this actually functions. And some of it is to do with the whole P-zombie kind of conversation that we have uh, in philosophy. And finally, we have created a P-zombie, which manifest similar behaviors because we have trained it to do so without having the similar internal mechanisms that drive it to exhibit those behaviors. So like there's a bit of definitional tennis going on here and you know that's part of it. The P zombie would just for the listeners who are less familiar with this sort of uh, philosophy 101 example would be uh, a zombie that demonstrates uh, by some externalist definition of pain uh, the experience of pain, but where you could plausibly say that it doesn't feel the pain, right? Or how, how would you how would you define a P-zombie? If, if from every external characteristic, something or a, a being that looks human, but is not human, where it does not possess consciousness internally, it just is doing it as an automaton would. It is, it's, a, it's a thought experiment that has always struck me as really weird and kind of silly and finally we have something where it at least gets closer to manifesting what that might look like do you ever think that human beings are pea zombies or that some some of them are is that is that in, in a immoral thought to have i don't think it's immoral i think it is um i don't think it is a correct thought to have insofar as you are unable to define that in any meaningful sense because one of the interesting things about human beings, LMs um, too in some ways, is that we are able to talk about impossible things, right? Like, I am, I know, I can say, hey, Zohar, I thought of a circle that is square in shape, which is a sentence that makes no sense, but it's grammatically correct. It just talks about a thing that cannot be. And a large chunk of philosophy, not a large chunk, a, a, a substantial, a meaningful chunk, a small but meaningful chunk of philosophy kind of talks about these things where you try and create definitional wedges. And to me, definitional wedges have always been a function of the fact that language ultimately is a way of compressing information and for us to have this conversation with and not necessarily a function of the world per se. So I can tell you and you can tell me and like there's been reams written on it, books about the existence of a thing called a P-zombie which is looks, acts, behaves exactly as a human would, but does not have any inner representation or consciousness. And you will say, yeah, 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 that makes sense. I will say, yeah, it makes sense. But actually, when you kind of come down to it, I'm not entirely sure whether that is any different to us talking about a square shaped circle, because it's, it's a little bit like, you know, you have to contort yourself into not visualizing, not understanding certain things for that general vague metaphor to make sense. Um, 
So no, I don't think humans have bee zombies. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I scan the Bible, and obviously this is all retrofitting, but there are certain mythological characters that you might that you might say are bee zombies, like the Nephilim, who are these sort of gi- giants in in Genesis, and then they disappear. And a lot of a lot of ancient cultures have this sort of prehistory of man that references these giants that that then disappear, and it's like you know you could just say maybe that was our evolutionary precursor, but it's fun to think about them as sort of having the strength, but not the sentience. I think in pretty much all um, theological or mythological works, there are some, there is usually representations of different things. Nephilim, uh, Golem, I think is kind of talking yeah. about. Well, Golem is not in the of, Bible, but but it's uh, it's part of Jewish folklore. Indeed. Like it's, um, and where we try and imagine these sorts of, beings, for lack of a better word, which have different behaviors to how you would expect human beings to have. And it's the contrast between us and them that kind of explore, that help us explore a little bit of what it is to be human in some ways, right? I think um, I I do find it interesting, for sure. Do you feel like your career path, for lack of a better word, has been consistent or discontinuous? Like the, the engineering to hedge fund and private equity to uh, being a kind of intellectual. I, I see commonality in the themes and the way you approach it, but I'm curious kind of what that experience was like for you going from one to the next to the next. It's a, uh, I mean, a lot of this is like, you only see the dots connect when you look backwards. Um, it didn't feel discontinuous. It felt like I was finding things that were interesting and going to the next challenge and therefore solving for that, um, as opposed to sort of, you know, uh, feeling like there's a break of any sort between doing one thing versus the other. That's the good news, right? So that's that's definitely not been my uh, overt kind of um, uh, thesis about it. The There are commonalities and the common, commonalities are more in terms of sort of points of view or how you would see the world as opposed to sort of, you know, an individual easily definable topic that you can kind of thread throughout. So a couple of examples would be, we, t- we started the conversation talking about creativity and the answer I gave, you mentioned, is an engineering answer. And to me, that's, that's one part of how I think about the world, right? I mean, that frame sits very strongly with me. I do kind of the mechanistic view of the world is something that gives me a lot of information that gives me a lot of insight and allows me to understand things that I wouldn't have been able to understand otherwise. And it has been a huge boon for me, for sure. So that is definitely a big part of um, how I see the world. And that follows through even in terms of sort of trying to understand broader systems of how different parts of the systems interact with each other. Again, has been a large part that's been through economics, through hedge funds, through private equity, investing. This is a reasonably large chunk. Um, and the same shape kind of follows through with like you have an inquit sort of thing today and this thing has to change in some meaningful sense as you move to this inquit thing tomorrow. What does that world look like is something that kind of, again, exists across a large chunk of these kind of endeavors. And you have to train yourself to understand things at the right level of abstraction. Because either, neither sort of depending on where you need to be, sometimes it's deeper, sometimes it's narrower, but you have to be able to do both of those things 
those are at least a couple of the frames that stands out to me anyway. What is the most interesting sort of approach or concept that you can share from the, from a hedge fund practitioner's point of view? Interesting approach. Recency bias, but one that kind of comes to me is thinking of a lot of the actions in the world uh, or taking action in the world in terms of options. It's a, it's a frame that has stuck with me and has been hugely helpful. The whole idea of buying or selling an option effectively is that you are making a bet in anticipation of you making a decision in the future as opposed to making the decision now. And leaving all of the complexity aside, it is a very helpful frame to kind of think about, you know, a lot of junctures and decisions that you have to make in your life, right? I think I think it, that is one that has helped me a lot because oftentimes you think about like a like a decision you have to make and you're like, okay, you know, how would I think about it from an, is, you know, is it an option that I am keeping open or like, is it something that is a commitment from now until forever? And these are, these are not common ways to think about it, especially in the business world when you have to make decisions inside companies or organizations or whatever. But it is a hugely helpful way to think about, you know, this huge multidimensional problems and you just compress them down to say, like, what do we need to do today based on X? And then the decision point comes and you can actually make it. But it, 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 it's a, it's a, that's one frame that has helped me quite a bit. This may be a awkward question for you to answer because it puts you in the position of uh, self-advocate. But um, what do you think is your edge, however you want to define that, specifically within investing? Because obviously you're smart, so you would only do it if you felt that you had an edge. So I'm curious what, what your self-conception is of your edge. <laughs> uh, this is a, it is a harder question. Um, I'll talk specifically in terms of sort of venture because it varies a little bit. But I think um, conceptualizing a future and imagining how a product or a company can actually reach that future is actually fairly difficult. And that's somewhere where I definitely do have an edge. Um, in some ways, it's difficult only because it is, um, you cannot reduce it to metrics. Because if you could, it becomes easy and it becomes part of the base standard and everyone else can kind of jump on top of it and do it. You can't reduce it to easy um, rules even, right? Like, you know, so-and-so, where did they study? What did they look like? You know how do they perform, et cetera? What are the psychometrics? None of these things are actually all that predictive. Um, but it is some combination of uh, seeing the team, what they're working on the product, trying to understand where it actually fits in within the real world in the customer sense. Uh, and imagining, it is imagining a future where you can imagine a version of that that is sufficiently advanced a year actually becoming a core part of the workflow or like daily lives for a larger chunk of people that requires this blend of, you know, slightly fiction thinking, right? Like, I mean, cause you're, it's, it's like writing a, it's like writing the future. And I think that's one where I definitely do have an edge. Mm. That's what I would say if I were to say for myself, others might disagree. What, to what do you attribute your interest or obsession with that sort of, of all the things that one could, sort of focus on within the realm of investing and, and trying to get an edge. Like, obviously, it's uh, completely on, on the opposite side of the spectrum from high-frequency traders who are just like, you know, I need I need better uh, fiber optics <laughs> for my Wi-Fi speed um, so, I, so I can arb some trade at volume. 
Um, <clears throat> what, do, what do you think in your personal life or experience led you to sort of be interested in this question of the, the, uh, the future that, that can't be predicted by way of metrics, but can be intuited or imagined and, and underwritten? In, in, a, in a weird way, I think it's a blend of two things. One is the fact that I am a big fan of fiction in general, in all its domains, science fiction, fantasy, regular, literary, genre, you name it. I grew up reading it sort of incessantly. And it is a big part of, you know, creating new worlds and stories is a huge part of what makes me happy. So, like, it is it is a huge chunk of how I think about the world, as it were. And the second thing is that by education and also by interest, I should say, I am fairly metrics-focused in life. So, like, I love spreadsheets. I understand how to analyze these things properly. And, you know, if you give me large sets of data, there is something meaningful that I can actually do with them. But when you put both of those things together, you understand where one sort of stops and the other one takes up and you need to have a grasp on both of those things right so if i the way i think about it is that if i did not have the latter like the actual numerical fluency some technical proficiency then you're effectively on a soapbox you have no real insight right because you do need to it's a coming back a little bit to sort of the mastery point you do need to be able to go a little bit deep before you can create some sort of a compelling story at a meaningful level of abstraction. Um, and if you don't have the former, then you're effectively like a number crunching monkey. Like it's it, like you, you can probably do a lot of creative work even within that if you want to do high frequency or whatever, but that's never been something that excited me a whole lot. I'm like, I mean, you like there are people who love solving puzzles and it's really hard and intellectually challenging and rewarding. And to me, it's like, what's the point of solving? I don't know, like, a, like by itself, that doesn't help you with anything, right? You really need to go for solving something meaningful. Like the question has to um, be worth the effort, so to speak. So just uh, coming back to earlier parts of the conversation, do you feel that the engineering um, training is a precondition for doing the imagination or how do you think about the relationship between imagining the future, which doesn't exist, um, or at least, at least buying the option for a possible future. And then this much more ta uh, tangible uh, engineering frame, which is like, this is how you build a thing and these are its component parts and here's the logic of it. Uh, I don't know if it's necessary. I would say for me, looking back, it was essential. But I know that's not a sufficiently descriptive way of doing it. I mean, one way to explain it is like, uh, I don't know if you know the author Brandon Sanderson. I mean, he writes science fiction. Um, okay, so he is one of the, he's probably the preeminent science fiction author of today. And he is incredibly prolific and he writes a lot of books, uh, very highly regarded in sort of any meaningful sense. One part of how he writes his books is that his books are written almost with like a engineering mindset. So he creates magic systems, uh, so many different types of magic systems. And in each system that he creates for each one of his books, he has a very clear like breakdown of, oh, this is how you would do it. You know, if X and Y combine, it creates C, which has X power, Y power. It's like an almost meticulous calculation. Some of them have calculations at the back of how he kind of gets to that. Now, 
he's an example of somebody who has entirely taken somewhat similar kind of obsessions about being highly um, pragmatic or like highly sort of uh, uh, systems focused into and combined it with his imagination to create something new, right? Like, so he writes fiction with that, which is a, which is sort of a one way to kind of approach it. So for me, like, I don't know whether the engineering education was essential or whether being the person that I am, I would have naturally ended up in engineering education anyway. There's a little bit of chicken and egg there where I can't really run the counterfactual and be able to figure out, you know, somewhere else that I might have ended up, right? Because considering who I was in high school, the chances that I would have ended up in English lit was fairly low, but there was a chance that I might have ended up in something like philosophy, if that, if that were an option, which is close enough that it perhaps retains a large chunk of the frames that we have been talking about. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I mean, this is a N equal to one experiment. So as as you can probably feel, there's this sort of art and science dynamic in a lot of what we've been talking about and the ways in which they're in tension and the ways in which they're in symbiosis. And I'm interested in what AI is potentially going to do to the value of each. So as AI gets better and smarter at doing all number of tasks, even if we, even if we don't... Um, even if we don't assume that it's going to be full-blown uh, AGI um, and we and we assume it's just going to be a, a more competent amateur, what do you think it's going to do to the premium placed on art or creativity versus science or, or sort of technical um, execution? I think in a weird way for any creative field, the answer is somewhat similar. Um, and that that is across art, music, writing, sculpture, science, what have you. Like if it's a, because ultimately there's a large chunk of us uh, who are um, employed, excited about trying to create novel, new things in the world, right? And as creating new things of any stripe becomes easier in some ways. We have to kind of question whether there are newer things that we can actually graduate to and create versus this is the pinnacle and like, I don't know, human beings are kind of, um, we have hit the ceiling and like forever after there will be machines. I mean, this is a little bit of an emotional conclusion, but I am fairly uncertain that even if AI manages to come up and create incredible art as it's already doing, and it suppose it keeps getting better, suppose its writing gets better, there will continue to be a space for us to kind of create things of value to each other. And to me, it's for two reasons. One is instrumental, which is the fact that human beings are incredibly resilient and we have every time that our work has kind of gotten uh, automated or taken away or these devalued in some sense, we have found new sources of meaning and new ways of expressing ourselves. Um, and that's kind of continued throughout. And I feel there is no real reason to assume that will go away. And the second thing and a bigger thing is that a lot of our creativity and expression is in service of connecting with other people, right? Like we, you know, we try and uh, it's like the Adam Smith line, you know, the butcher and the baker and the candle maker don't really do this for their um, 
because because of for some altruistic reason they do it out of their own self interest and this is somewhat similar like where we try and do these things to connect with each other or to perform or to kind of it, it is the fact that the audience is human that makes it worth it you know like if all of our um output was being consumed only by the various llms we would feel pretty bad about it because like we are doing this in order to connect with other people it is the act of connection that is important so put those two things together i mean i feel like if anything the optimistic view is that as llms manage to bring about a world with lesser scarcity in some ways or makes us more efficient or helps us grow hopefully a larger chunk of us can pursue the things that we find meaningful and interesting and actually spend time on it um at the same time as saying that like it means there's a premium placed on the things that only humans can do where it might even be creating new elements or new types of art or whatever it might be where we would have to change ourselves to be able to do that and now as individuals we might not be able to do it because you know we are creatures of a certain lifespan and certain amount of learning ability but like there are generations that come after us who hopefully can actually you know take on that challenge right and do well with it so if we agree with the thesis that <clears throat> and i do um that human human edge relative to ai is going to become handsomely rewarded and also necessary meaning th- those who don't those who don't have an edge are p- potentially like at the mercy um what so you're you're in the business of predicting the future or at least imagining it so if you agree with that with that vision that you painted um what are you doing now for yourself or like for your you know for the next generation to prepare them for that for that wave i think what that means is that the types of things that i would be doing now have to be the bar is higher right you have to do something relatively meaningful to make that world come about i think that's important so part of the reason i got excited about it and started playing out around a lot more with ai now like after sort of a few years is that now finally you can actually create things that you would not have been able to create before you can learn much faster and you can upskill yourself in some ways to actually become you know contribute in ways that are not as simple as what it was before right i think that's a that's a reasonably um important way to kind of solve that problem as far as the next generation goes i think it's somewhat similar i mean the education has to be eclectic you uh in I mean think about it right when we went to school if somebody said this is what the world was going to be like in 2023 the types of education you might have actually wanted to get even in in hindsight would have been probably different to the ones that we actually did get and i feel the same question applies much more for the next generation so to me like it means idiosyncrasies interests have to be nurtured and focused and ex- like you know explored a lot more than outcome focused efforts of like you know you need to know x amount of math by y age cuz i feel like that methodology of instruction is probably not all that relevant anymore especially for today's day and age um i mean it's like you know i don't want to paint with too broad a brush because of course it is helpful like across all sorts of socio economic strata etc but but the very fact that the future is unpredictable and the, there's going to be a much wilder type of thing that is going to come up in a hyperconnected 
you know, 2053 means that like I would want my kids to be able to understand the things that they're good at, be able to do some of those things, like have a broad array of knowledge across a whole bunch of different domains rather than just be hyper-specialist in any individual one. And most importantly, to be able to understand that they have the ability to kind of pursue their curiosity or like be creative in ways that they would not have been sort of easily able to do otherwise. I think we have to do a lot of work in encouraging that a lot more. Mark Andreessen recently wrote this, the Techno Optimist Manifesto, and I think you brought, you broadly are aligned with it. But I'm curious, um, do you identify as a as a techno optimist, or what would be your your sort of self label if you had to if fit yourself within the matrix of these sort of intellectual market trends? Uh, you know, there's effective altruism, rationalism, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, curious, like. What's the landscape, and 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 where and where do you differentiate yourself, and where do you position yourself? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a it is a uh, it, it is a funny landscape, that's for sure. I generally am not a huge fan of labels, but yes, I broadly agree with the techno optimism uh, trend. If not, like the manifesto is interesting, but of course, a manifesto is a manifesto, right? It's a call for action. It's not a rational argumentation, um, but it which is okay. I mean, that's that's it's it's a different document for a different purpose. Um, to me, like the way I think about it is if we believe that the world of 10 years from now, world of tomorrow, world of 10 years from now, 100 years from now has to be better than the world of today, then there's a set of actions that we need to take to make that come about. A large chunk of those actions, at least in the economic sphere, revolve around, even in the social, cultural, political sphere, revolve around making the world better for our kids effectively than they were for us, right? I mean, in some sense, making the world better for our kids than for us means that we need to kind of grow the economic pie for lack of a better word. If you want to grow the economic pie or the possibility of uh, larger degrees of freedom for everyone, then that kind of means that we do need to do a bunch of things primarily technology related, but not just that in order to make that future come about. Once you kind of flow down this road, then there is no real option but to be a techno-optimist. Because you can't easily be a, I mean, I guess you can be a techno-pessimist and become sort of anti-AI, but that has never particularly struck me as a sensible place to kind of have a have a life if you're kind of doing this as your job. I don't want to hate myself from now forevermore. And I do believe that in the fundamental tenet that like as human beings, we are able to control our destiny to some extent. And if we do see problems in front of us, we are able to catch them and solve them because we have done so several times in the past. Everything from pandemics to acid rain, you know, like to whatever the ozone layer, like we have kind of figured out different ways when the problem has been facing us and solved it. You could look at the social technologies we have developed, you know, larger organizations, governmental bureaucracy, ever onwards, and say that, hey, you know, that side of technology is breaking down. You know, we probably need a little bit less of it than more. But even with that, I mean, very few people would argue that the world of 2023 is not better than the world of, I don't know, 1923 or like 50 years ago or even 30 years ago, right? I mean, we... We live better lives, we live far richer lives, we have more of everything that we want. And I just want that trend to continue. So that's at least my core tenet of how I think about the future. So I don't really see a choice but to be techno-optimist in this case. Um, I think I would agree with that, but maybe say that 
the choices aren't techno optimism versus techno pessimism, but there's you know it's a two by two for lack of a better word. Um, <laughs> and and what's on the other axis for you? Um, culture. Um, so so I think I think if tech if technology is is sufficiently broad to include cultural technology, then maybe we don't need that. But I don't I don't really see an emphasis on culture when I when I read a lot of the techno optimist. It sort of feels like if we can just find a cure for this disease, then the world will be better. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, we should definitely invest in finding a cure for the disease. So I'm not, I'm not a pessimist saying don't do that. Um, but like, it's just amazing to me that there's a non-negligible chance of World War III right now, according to a bunch of like macroeconomic and geopolitical thinkers. And people are worried about AI risk. Um, and, and it's like, I, I feel like we, we still haven't solved like sort of basic fundamental human challenges like war <laughs> and terrorism and just basics like envy and resentment and so on. And so maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves and we start worrying about like, is AI going to kill us? I'll, uh, you know, Yudkowsky and all of that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, you, yeah, you know where I stand on the will AI kill yeah. us all kind of debate. But I think on the culture side, I would make two points. Um, one is that there is less emphasis on it in some sense in from the techno-optimist circles, generally speaking, because you can't do much about it. I, I, we'll part, put a pin in it because maybe we can and we just don't know how. But like, if someone comes and says, hey, I have an idea. If we do X, Y, and Z, we have a reasonable chance of curing autism. I'm like, all right, okay, let's take a look at it. It's a big problem. And there is a problem. There is a path to attack and we'll solve it. There are very few people who come and say, it's like, hey, I have a great idea. Here's how we cure terrorism. And like, there is kind of a cure, which is a weird mix of like, you need peace negotiations and some stick and like economic growth so that the incentive kind of drops away. Like, it is this weird mix of things that you kind of just have to do in order to make the particular form of um call it what you will resentment evil kind of have that go away from our lives but culture is just hard to kind of grabs like you can't put your hands around it the second thing i would say is that if you think about the cultural changes we have made in the last 20 years because of tech right the two of them perhaps that you could put your finger on might be something to the order of social media like you know all, all, all different forms and facets of social media, um, which was more a cultural move than a technological move, as I would see it in some ways, or things like YouTube or podcasts, because it's a new format of cultural dissemination and conversation that did not realistically exist in the old world, kind of as radio, but not really, because now it's citizen uh, engagement in some sense, right? Like, I mean, you don't need to kind of get permission from someone to do it, which is phenomenal and fantastic. And we get to have this dialogue. So there is, I mean, culture kind of sneaks in where we can by trying to affect the way that the world actually works. And sometimes it ends up being angry birds and sometimes it ends up being Instagram. And we don't really have a good way to think about this in the first place. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know where that leaves us, but it is, it is an interesting question. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I, um, so I had Seth Kaplan on the podcast. It just came out today. Um, he wrote a book called Fragile Neighborhoods. He's, his first book was Fragile States. 
And it's very much focused on like social technology and almost ascribes, again, I, I don't necessarily, I, I think he would disagree that there's nothing we can do about it. But like he would say that the deaths of despair and all that kind of stuff in the first world, you know, rising loneliness, anxiety, depression, um, can can be solved with social technology, but not with purely an investment in these material technologies. So I, I guess that's where you, one, one wonders what the, what what would happen in a world where we put all of our attention and energy into building SaaS solutions for things? Um, I mean, the the weird <laughs> thing is, right? Like, if you said, I mean, I've I've seen sort of different bits and pieces of tech for like creating communities, and the weird thing is that communities don't get created through tech, because coming back to our AI versus people point, it's a people thing. You have to kind of engage and. You know, so it can. I mean, you, it can be internet native. There is no problems with that. It can be audio only, video only. You can do any combination, but ultimately, it's about people. The people have to gel and integrate and talk to each other and build off of each other, etc. Um, and the thing that I keep going back to is that one of the best cultural technologies that we have created over the last sort of thousand years is the university, which is a place where you go for a relatively amorphous purpose, which is learning you know, in a kind of broad sense. And some some people choose that to say, I need to get a job. And some people say that I need to understand all of philosophy. And some people try to understand, I don't know what I want. I just want to hang out with people. But there is a blend of enough of those people that it creates a certain culture inside these places where you kind of learn from each other and try to become uh, better people. Like, to me, when you think about, when we think about like solving things like, I mean, name a, name a social cultural problem, it exists, right? Whether it's uh, uh, polarization or like loneliness or you know deaths of despair as you said to me this is kind of what I think about like ultimately these are not problems that can be solved through singular technical solutions in the sense that like you give everybody zoom and like we've kind of sorted it out but instead it's about connection with other human beings which ironically means that they need to get less atomized in some sense and actually come and connect with people uh, IRL as it were in real life yeah. Well, what about just this sort of Heideggerian critique of techno optimism, which is not which is not techno pessimism, but it's just the idea that um, by being too optimistic, we sort of miss what you just described, which is the the IRL or the authentic or this sort of other thing uh, that that neither optimism nor pessimism sees, which is the non technological, the the human. So. I suppose like one response would be, well, if you just grow the economic pie, then it gives people the freedom or the choice to to choose meaning. And so, but if you if you have a shrinking pie, then they'll have other problems. And and so, I, yeah, I get that. But um, but I I feel like there needs to be an asterisk next next to the techno optimism. Maybe maybe that's my critique. I mean, I, I think the Heideggerian critique of of this particular part is. It, it has one flaw which exists in a lot of philosophical critiques, which it takes uh, a change and extrapolates it to its logical endpoint. Whereas in sort of the real world per se, things have natural breaking points and you kind of revert back to the equilibrium. So, you know, in, in the real world, as it were, we have had 10 years of social media. I mean, 15 if you want to kind of get pedantic about it, but like realistically, 10 years of social media. And already for the last like three years, we are all saying like evils of social media, you need to people in real life. Like 
there's been a natural correction to that particular sentiment that you do kind of want to meet people face to face and build that connections. Um, and also like a lot more focus on the fact that face to face interactions matter. Like, you know, you should do Zooms just for fun or like, like there is a set of um, cultural norms that are being built up around the fact that human beings need other human beings around it and we are social apes. So that would be my sort of general sort of philosophical point that sits here that like while it is true that if you extrapolate this too much yes you might end up being atomized you know same as one marks that you might end up being alienated there are these there are these every there's a set of thinkers exceptionally diverse thinkers who have all kind of come around to the similar idea that if you overtly focus on some particular aspect of technology you might lose what it is to be human every step along the way though we have somewhat corrected it but found a new way to be human. And I don't know whether it is particularly something that the old people would agree with. So like, I don't know, you know, Heidegger might look at both of us having a dialogue over uh, the internet and think that, no, 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 they have actually lost the plot. Whereas you and I might disagree with him because we don't think of this as the be all and end all of the relationship in the first place, right? So the uh, while I think that the asterisks kind of makes sense and I'll come back to it. I think the, the philosophical extrapolation sometimes leaves the real world behind in this one sense. The asterisk coming back is the idea that, look, if you think about sort of the rise of exceptional technology over the last sort of hundred years, one outcome of that has been that exceptional complexity that comes along with it. Everybody is a cog in a giant machine, and most people know that they are cogs now, and that's not a particularly pleasant place to be because nobody wants to be a cog. And we are all trying to find ways to kind of liberate ourselves from this uh, samsara, as it were, and try to find a way to kind of find meaning in our lives. And finding meaning is very hard when you are... I don't know, like assistant to the VP of marketing in Coca-Cola trying to craft like a tiny little, like this is not, that's not a job that is, gives a lot of people meaningful interaction with the world in some sense. Will that get solved? I am reasonably optimistic in the medium term, but that is a clear fault of the technology, techno-optimistic growth trajectory that has happened over the last X years. And you can't solve it just by making people richer and sending them to Maldives. You have to solve it in the job itself. Keynes has that line, I believe, that the market can um, can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. That, that's another that's another kind of critique I have of the techno optimism is even if it's correct on a fundamentals basis, the world can can remain stupid or retro or anti liberal or whatever longer than techno-optimists can can win simply by doubling down on their vision. Like in some ways, the myopia of techno-optimism may be they're their undermining because of the, the reflexive nature of markets, if you will. I mean, that's a good, putting, a good way of putting it. I think one other way to think about it is that, you know, this is a little bit like, uh, like in the Gita, right? I mean, we are all given paths to play in life and Unfortunately or fortunately in the world, like a lot of the world works as adversarial entities. So the techno optimist's job in some ways is to push for extreme speedy, you know, no holds barred, let's make things tomorrow, it doesn't matter, almost what the cost is, etc. 
And it's up to someone else in the society to kind of point to them and go like, hey, 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 you know, that is great. This is not great. Slow down here, speed up. Like you, you need that friction because that friction is what enables us to find the equilibrium. Like at one point I thought about um, uh, Facebook, right? And there's a lot of critiques of Zuckerberg that kind of talk about he should have thought of X, Y, and Z. And like, there's a lot of contradictory things that everyone thinks that he should have done. And one part of the answer is that his day job is that he is the CEO of Facebook, yeah, no, Meta now. What he has been tasked to do by his board of directors, the public shareholders, and himself is to try and grow the value of the company. So it's in some ways incumbent on the rest of us to kind of look at that and go like, hey, if you're doing something that as a society we might disapprove of, if that is the case, like you do need that friction, right? You can't just yell at him to like kind of go solve the problem. You got to like you, you got to tell him what the problem is and then have him solve it or create regulation to solve it or something of that nature. Adversarial systems require conflict for us to get to truth. It's like debating. There also there's also enmeshment. So if, if Facebook goes to zero, many middle class, hardworking people will their their pensions will also go to zero. So they need they need Facebook to succeed, um, whether they agree with it or not. And these are these are fundamentally not amenable to binary solutions. Um, these are all problems where, like you know, if you're struggling with any problem that deals with you know humanity, our culture, whatever it might be, like politics-specific solutions, you can't have a binary solution. You, 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 the only way is to get your hand in the muck and kind of rake about until you get the solution that somewhat works. Um, your, your rendering of the Gita was very Adam Smithian, and I'm wondering, is that a unique sort of interpretation, or have you come across that before? That was a fascinating synthesis. And then sort of part two would be, what other lessons do you find sort of applicable um, moral teachings that, that are useful from the Gita or sort of other works from, from a Hindu perspective that either do mesh with the sort of classical liberal philosophical tradition or maybe challenge it or add, add something to it? Uh, I, am, uh, I am not a uh, good enough comparative religion scholar to be able to give a good answer to that question, but I'll tell you a couple of things that stand out to me. Um, I mean, so the part of the Gita, there is one part where... Um, uh, Lord Krishna is a charioteer to Arjuna, who is one of the warriors, and they're on two sides of, he is on one side of uh, a giant war, and on the other side is a lot of his relatives, and including his, like, teacher, guru, etc., and he, there's a, it's a dialogue, right? He's talking to Krishna and saying, like, how can I fight them? They are, you know, my brothers, and they are, you know, my gurus, and Part of that is like Krishna kind of telling him like, like your 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 job is to do your duty. You know, you if you are a warrior, you need to do your duty and not necessarily think about the fruit of that duty in some sense, right? Your So it's like don't think about um the 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 result of this particular action. Your job is to take the action. And as a warrior, he's trying to tell him that like your job is to stand on your side and actually have fight, not necessarily think about all of the existential extra circumstances, which is why it seemed apt uh, from our uh, conversation about like atomization and adversarial kind of con concepts. Um, regarding the broader Hindu scriptures, I'll tell you, I mean, this is not a lesson, but this is something that I find fascinating is that when you think about a lot of the older like Vedic literature, which admittedly I've read only like many, many years ago, 
Something that stands out to me is that there's a lot of almost quasi-scientific thinking that actually exists in there around ex- the interest around natural phenomena, human bodies. They have a similar, like, four humors kind of. They have everyone. I mean, all, a lot of places do, but Hindus had had that before as well. Um, a very atheistic parts of the uh, scripture also exist about certain sects and people who basically did not believe that the God exists or effectively it existed in either such a amorphous form at the final level that it almost doesn't matter whether it's God or it's some version of pantheism. Um, and uh, because it's a, you know, a very old religion that is a sort of syncretic mix of a whole bunch of different religions that came together as well as cultures, beliefs, etc. I take comfort in reading that and kind of understanding that like the pluralistic nature of humanity kind of reflects in the scripture that actually comes out because there is no one scripture either. There is like, there are so many different variants and variations and many of them were written at many different periods of time by many different types of people and the types of lessons that come out from that kind of span every walk of life. So it almost feels like uh, reading an ancient substack as opposed to uh, as opposed to like a polished final version, if you will. Um, but uh, Gita, if you haven't read, I would highly recommend it. It's, it's, uh, it's pleasurable, which is not an adjective yeah, I would use lightly. It's long, much, much, much bigger than the Bible. <laughs> is, is it longer than the Bible? Oh no, oh no, the, oh no, I guess, I guess not. The, um, the scriptures are, Gita itself might be. Yeah, uh, Gita, oh yeah, Gita itself isn't, uh, it, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've written about um, sabbaticals, right? Um, you've also written about um, patronage. And I'm curious what you think the, the role of both of those are um, in society as it relates to this topic of sort of edge, genius, creativity, um, doing something that, that's not commoditized, that they couldn't be replaced by the AI. Will there be a need for more sabbaticals going forward? Um, what What do you see as the future of these things in your ideal or or just more descriptively? I 100% think that there's a need for more for both of those things. But over the, like since I wrote about patronage, which I wrote sort of a couple of years ago and the sabbaticals, I have come to think of sabbaticals as more important. Um, there is such enormous potential locked within people who kind of spend their day to day in maybe not quite desperation, but at least a, a quite slight dissatisfaction. And uh, there is no, I mean, part of being human is to kind of consistently search for an answer to questions that you know you will never get an answer to, like what is the purpose of life? But part of being human is also that like knowing that you have the urge to do something and then consistently not having 12 hours a day, which is the you know majority of your waking life, to be able to pursue something that you think might be interesting or useful. And one way it manifests itself, one simple example might be you talk to the number of people, like the number of people who have at least one book inside of them is dramatically large. It, it just, it's absurdly large. And the number of people who do write them are absurdly small. And this is not a situation that should exist, right? I mean, even from a general cultural awakening perspective, it, it, it would be better if more people had an outlet for some of these things. 
I am making this argument as a good in and of itself and not necessarily a utilitarian good. You know, I'm not making a GDP number go up argument here. I'm saying this is a better way for humanity to actually exist in the world where we think about how we want to actually, you know, develop some of these things that actually exist in the world. So, like, patronage is important insofar as you need larger um unconditional methods of funding, call it uh, weird people around the world. I think it is important and I think it would be nice if that actually existed. Sabbatical, on the other hand, is a self-directed push that I, I want to sort of get more people to be able to try this in some sense because it is it is one of the few ways that you can take a breather from your daily life and actually get a little bit more connected with who you are and it's not something that should be relegated to something that you will do when you're 65 maybe maybe the relationship between the two is that sabbatical is a scaled up patronage so pa- patronage is like for the one in 10,000 um and and at a particular inflection point in life and then sabbatical is this more ongoing thing and you're trying to normalize it as a one in 100 yeah the way I conceptualized it is that we, for almost the entirety of the first, call it 25 years of life, we have regular breaks. For the rest, from, from there until retirement, there's no breaks. It just feels weird to me. I mean, it's like, you know. You're talking you about like summer, to, summer vacation? You have summer vacations breaks, like you have regular intervals and breaks. And once you start working every day, it's like it, that just disappears. And it's, I mean, I understand and you can get a little bit when you break, but I fundamentally believe it, it's a little bit like, you know, Bezos had this line about Amazon where that like their scale of their failures should scale up as the company got larger. Like you can't have small failures when the Amazon is a trillion dollar company. I feel a little bit like that with sabbatical. The scale of your vacations have to scale up according to uh, like your life, because you you need more time sometimes to process what's happened or like maybe just chill out and not do anything. That's fine as well. But like it is important. This is not a um, it's not a small thing. It is a big thing that you actually do need to kind of spend time, effort, and energy on. And to think that it is not even in the consideration set for a lot of people is what makes me sad. Final question: When is your next sabbatical scheduled? Uh, I'm on one as we speak, which will end pretty soon. It looks like, which means the next one will be in another five to ten years. Awesome! Thank you so much. <laughs> My absolute pleasure, man. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.